So, I am a child of the 60s. And looking at me, uh, you know, you might think, was this guy ever a child? But I was. I was a child in the 60s. And, and, and it, was, it was a long time ago, but it was actually, you know, a half century ago. About 53 years ago, to be exact, a three-minute and 43-second song was recorded in England by Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. It was called Satisfaction. Remember, I can't get no. Yeah, Satisfaction. And it, and it really, it was a song of the 60s, but it captured more than just the, the pathos of the 60s. Uh, and unlike a lot of songs that, you know, they, they, they come along and then their popularity wanes or maybe their cultural relevance kind of, kind of goes away as culture moves on. Satisfaction kind of lives on because it speaks to a condition that's common to all men of all time. I mean, it resonates with us as victims, right? Of, uh, how do you put it? Of useless information. You know, somebody trying to tell me how white my shirt should be, you know, and he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me. And, and, and it resonates with all of us because it's a condition that's common to all of us and it's about an everyday guy just trying against all odds to find peace of mind and comfort in the, in just the brutality of life. And satisfaction nails, I mean, it nails the contradiction in our lives, the contradiction between what we say we want and we can't get and between what we have and say we don't want. It's a tension there. Now, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards are not theologians. But, but they exposed a timeless, deep down heart frustration that we are on a relentless search for satisfaction. Now, as we close the book of Colossians today, or preach uh, through the last passage that we're going to be in this week, I want us to take a step back and kind of look at the, at the enormity of the horizon of Colossians. And what the issue is about, what it's talking about, because Colossians is talking about fullness. It's talking about fullness. You know, you see that uh, displayed in, in the in the in the uh, in the text. There, it says earlier on in the book, uh, talking about Jesus, it says, "In Him all the fullness of deity dwells." We're in desperate search of fullness, and the text tells us that that fullness is found in Christ, the ultimate fullness. Now here's something. But because we were made in the image of God, it's a fullness that we were designed to experience. It's a fullness that we were made for. There is satisfaction. There is satisfaction, full and complete and final. And if you are because it says in Jesus, and in Jesus, you have been made complete. And that word, although it's translated complete, what it means is filled up to the top. You are made full in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're interested, and you are, in satisfaction, in fullness, then you're interested 
in the message of Colossians. And, and for Paul, as, as, as he talks about the, the enormity, the, the theological grandeur of Jesus being the fullness of all things, for him, that's not just theological gobbledygook. It comes down. Jesus is the real hope of fulfillment for all men everywhere. Earlier in the third chapter, it talked about fullness in our marriage, fullness with our children, fullness at the workplace, fullness in our communication with God, and fullness in our interaction with the world, with people that don't believe as we do. We can have fullness in those relationships. Now, what I believe is the climax of Paul's letter here in the last section reveals how the fullness of Christ was transforming the lives and relationships of those around him. For Paul, the proof is in the pudding that Jesus Christ fulfills and satisfies. And he wants us to know that, and he wants us to believe that. Now, before we read the passage, I want to give you a little warning that there's some names in here that you're probably not familiar with. Most of us aren't. Uh, and the Bible actually says very little about some of these people. And that's okay. Don't worry about it. Um, I'll, I'll try to backfill in a little of the story uh, of the backstory uh, with them as we go on. So let's look in Colossians chapter 4. We're going to put, put in at verse 7. It's the Apostle Paul writing, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions if he comes to you welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement for me. Epaphras, told you there was a lot of names. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brothers who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Paul was living out the fullness of Jesus Christ. Where was he? He was in a Roman prison. And all that Paul has said that, that precedes this in, in Colossians about the, uh, about the fullness of Christ would have really little meaning, wouldn't it? I mean, if it didn't actually come down and penetrate that prison cell that Paul was in. 
And so he writes as one who is experiencing the fullness of Jesus Christ. And even though he was an apostle, even though he was a man with a message, even though he was a powerful preacher, here he was cooped up and his freedom was taken. But the interesting thing about this, and for for that matter, all of Paul's letters, is that there's no hint of dissatisfaction. Not one. Not one word. As a matter of fact, In others of his letters that he wrote from the same uh, prison situation, he says that uh, he was amply supplied. He says, I've got everything I need. He says, I'm content, you know, whether I have a little or whether I have a lot. I'm content because of the fullness of Christ. And he even says that, that, that because he was cramped down in this prison cell, he says, I can see how God is causing the progress, of the, the progress of the gospel to go out farther and wider, even from this prison cell. Paul was satisfied. Paul was content. So, I think the reason that Paul was is because he realized that God had him right where he wanted him right then. And that what God was doing in his life was the very best thing that could be done for him and for God's purposes through him at that time, in that prison. Not over the next hill, not when he could get out and go someplace else, not when he could get his freedom again, not when he could uh, be free to move about the cabin, but right then and right there. And that, I think, is a lesson for us. As Christians, I think sometimes we, we're not really trusting in the fulfillment of God for where we are. We want to be able to move over here to some other place to get out of the difficulty that we're in or, or to change our circumstances, and then we will experience the fullness of God. But Christian, the fullness of God, the sufficiency of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, is for right here and right now in your life. The second thing that we can see in this letter that jumps out everywhere is Paul's appreciation for the people that he worked with, his fellow workers. Because he sends them greetings. And in the and in the East, greetings aren't like we do out in the foyer. We're just kind of, hey, how are you? I'm doing fine. Yeah, hi. Yeah, hey, yo. You know, all that kind of stuff. It was a much more formal uh, a, a thing where there was an expression and a greeting of appreciation and even recognition. It was really more like little greeting cards, you know, you would... You know, where, 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 there's, where there's some emotion, where there's some investment in it. And Paul, throughout this, I mean, the word greeting is used, I don't know how many times. And he greets them as beloved brothers and fellow bond slaves. You know, Paul didn't consider himself, though he was an apostle, above his fellow workers in any way. They were fellow sinners saved by grace. And and Paul's view of ministry was not one of a hierarchy where the apostle is up here and everybody else is down here. But he said, we are all servants. He calls them fellow servants of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel levels the playing field, really. It really does. 
Through the gospel, we are all united directly with Jesus Christ. We're one with him. And there's no distinction and no hierarchy. Although there are different callings and gifts and so forth, each Christian is connected by faith directly to the head himself, Jesus Christ. There's no, in Christianity, there's no organizational charts where you have the president up here and you have vice presidents there and you have all the people down there and you fit in somewhere down here. There's no organizational charts. There's no flow charts that goes like through these people down like this to you. Every Christian is connected directly to the head of Jesus Christ and is a servant and is a valued servant. So I don't know if you have thought about it this way, but no one ever rises above the level of servant in the kingdom. And why would they? (laughs) I mean, why would we? Because being a servant of Jesus Christ is the highest calling that there is. So no one gets above that. Appreciation, Paul did appreciate those that he worked with, but he didn't elevate them. And when we do appreciate one another, it's an expression of the fullness of Christ in our own lives. Now, let's see how this works out right here. I got to be careful about this, <laughs> but I often hear people express appreciation for the pastors. And I like that. I think we all like that. And I often hear people say, we need to pray for our pastors. And I like that too. So don't get me the wrong idea here. But you know what I'd like to hear and I'd like to see, and I think that would be good for us, is to the recognition of one another. The people that are cleaning the church, the people that greet, the people that fix things around here, the people that are open their homes and have people with muddy shoes tramp in for home group every week. Fellow servants. Fellow servants. I mean, you can keep up praying for the pastors too (laughs) and and appreciating, but, but expressing that appreciation to one another. And the effect of a word of appreciation, it's incredible. I'm going to tell a story about the church that um, we came from previously, which is, let's put it like this. Uh, it's conservative uh, in the sense that, um, uh, I mean, you know, a piano was used for worship. And one time somebody brought a guitar out and everybody, wait a minute, that's not a piano. So that's the environment, okay? So our son Daniel was a drummer. He was in junior high. And uh, he wanted to start playing the drums. And the elders had said, yeah, that's okay if you, if you play the drums. But, and, and, and after the first, well, we had a breaking of bread service. But before the worship service, oftentimes he'd be sitting his little drum set up there in the front. And there were some of these people in the back kind of going, hmm, drums. You know, just looking at it with suspicion. But this guy that had to be well into his 80s, Dave, he's in heaven now. But Dave, uh, who was not in good health, older, a balding fellow, Dan told me this just the other day. He said he would almost come bouncing up. And he'd say, hey, Dan, are you going to play the drums today? Boy, he says, it just adds so much to our worship. A lot of other people in the back were kind of going like this, right? But Dave encouraged him. 
And Dan said that, you know, he was discouraged because he knew there were a lot of people looking at him and watching him, disapproving by their glances of what he was doing. And yet Dave came up well into his 80s. And he didn't find out till later that Dave didn't even like drums. <laughs> but Dave understood the value to the ministry and the value of appreciation and encouragement. So we're going to look at kind of three little cameos of people here that I think demonstrate for us the fullness of Christ, where it's on display. And the first one is this guy, Tychicus. Tychicus, I think that's the way you say it. And the reason that I I like the example of Tychicus is because Tychicus teaches us the triumph of the ordinary. The triumph of the ordinary. Most of us are pretty ordinary, unspectacular people. We're not super gifted or charismatic. And there's nothing really, really remarkable about us. And that should give us an immediate connection with this guy, Tychicus. Because although he was with Paul during a lot of his ministry, and he was here in Rome with Paul. As a matter of fact, he was going to carry the letter back to the Colossians. And he was with Paul a lot. There's, there's really almost nothing said about this guy. He's almost a footnote. And as far as we know, Tychicus was unspectacular. And aside from Paul's appreciation for Tychicus, for, uh, of Tychicus, Tychicus as a beloved brother and a bond slave, all we know about him, all we know, is that he was a messenger. Not a preacher, not a teacher, not a leader, just an ordinary guy. But he was a faithful servant. And what God commends is faithfulness. He doesn't ask us to be popular or brilliant or remarkable, but he does ask us to be faithful in the ministry task that he gives. And Tychicus' task was two things. If you read the, the text here, one of them was that he was going to deliver letters. So he was a messenger boy. He's an errand boy. And the other one was that he was to encourage. Now, there's a marquee gift for you, right? I mean, you know, you got preacher, teacher, Bible leader, you know, home group leader, deacon, elder, all this stuff, encourager. Where does that fit in? It's an important gift. Um, and I was reminded of this a couple of, I don't know, I guess maybe it's been about a month ago. There was this guy that Pastor David uh, kept talking about. His name was Monty. He said, Monty only comes over here from the valley maybe once a year or something, maybe twice. And when he does, uh, he always manages, David always wants to go see him. And so since David wanted to go see him, I thought, well, maybe I, you know, I'd like to go see this guy too. I don't know why, but so he said, so yeah, you can come with me and I'm going to have coffee with Monty. And we went over to a coffee shop and I've never met Monty before. <clears throat> don't know much about him, but I can tell you this, that after, and I know why David wants to meet with him now, because he's such an encourager 
I mean, this guy just builds you up talking to you and, and, and appreciating and, and, and investing in your life by what he, he says and encouraging you and this thing and that thing. And it just spills out of him. Now I know why he wants to go see him. I want to go see him next time too. That was Tichika's ministry. And he was faithful in it. Faithful. Faithful in his ordinariness. Not his exceptionality. And it's a reminder, isn't it, that the value of our ministry is based on our faithfulness and what we have received from Christ, not what we bring to Him. And I think because of the fullness of Jesus Christ, He delights in using the ordinary and unspectacular. And I'm, I'm thankful to know that. Thankful to know that I can please Jesus by being faithful in my ordinary and unspectacular self. And I hope that encourages you. The next little cameo we're going to look at is this guy named Onesimus. Now, Onesimus, his name is only mentioned twice, two times in the whole Bible. We don't know much about Onesimus, but this is important. The people that this letter was going to, they knew a lot about Onesimus. Onesimus was a criminal. At the time this letter was written, you might well have been able to go down to the post office in Colossae and there would have been a picture of Onesimus. Have you seen this man with a number under his picture? Here's the backstory. Onesimus was a runaway slave of Philemon, who was one of the church leaders in Colossae. Now, we really don't know how uh, Onesimus made his way to Rome, but somehow, somehow, in the providence of God, he came under the ministry of Paul. And in his letter to Philemon, Paul describes Onesimus as his child who came to faith through Paul's ministry while he was in prison. In other words, in the providence of God, Onesimus and Paul's paths intersected. The gospel was shared with Onesimus and his life was turned upside down. Now you know what Onesimus is doing here? He's taking the letter back to Colossae, the place that he ran away from. Here we have a runaway slave, an escapee, a fugitive with a price on his head whose heart is turned upside down by the gospel. And now, Paul is sending him back as a faithful and beloved brother, as a personal representative of Paul, to the very owner that he escaped from with a letter to the church. That's a big turnaround. You can't make this stuff up. It's understandable, right? that Onesimus as a slave would seek his freedom from being a slave. And I have no doubt that Onesimus' original plan was to escape his identity. Because slaves need to do that. And, and, and run away and just kind of blend into the Roman woodwork. But in the gospel, he learned that true freedom is freedom of the heart. 
And that his relationship with Jesus is what gave him the new identity that he sought. I think the transforming work of Jesus in the life of Nesimus should encourage each of us of what we can't do. The freedom that Onesimus sought and the identity that he wanted were not in his power to obtain. It's all found in Jesus Christ and in his fullness by believing him, trusting in him. And it was kind of ironic because as he was sent down the road with the letter that Paul gave him, Onesimus returned to Colossae with the freedom that was much greater than what he was looking for when he left. Onesimus was a slave. And some of you today are enslaved and you know it. And you live every day in the hope that you can somehow escape. And like Jagger, you try and you try and you try. But nothing seems to change. Onesimus thought he could set himself free, and many of you feel the same way. That if you can just change this circumstance or that, or get away from this difficult situation, you'll be free. But it's never worked that way, and it never will. It's the sacrifice of Jesus that frees you from the true captivity of sins and guilt and shame. And it is the power of the resurrected Jesus in your life. His fullness that can liberate you from slavery to sin. And it's His love that gives you a new identity as the beloved of Christ, just like it did Onesimus. It's the heart that needs to be set free, and only Jesus can do that. Jesus said, if the Son makes you free, you're going to be free indeed. Onesimus discovered that Christ is the true liberator. And like Onesimus... I think many of you long for a second chance, a new start. But you know, the Bible doesn't say that you need a new start. The Bible doesn't say that you need a second chance. The Bible says you need a new life. Life that's found only in Christ and through the gospel to be made a new man. If any man be in Christ, Paul writes, he's a new creation. Third person that we're going to look at today is Mark. And, and I think for, in, for Christians, this is so encouraging because Mark represents freedom from past failures. Freedom from past failures. Now, in the Bible, Mark gets more hits than the other guys that we've been talking about. He's the writer of the Gospel of Mark. And, and in chapter 14 of that book that has his name, that Gospel that has his name, tradition has it that, that he was the young man that was wrapped only in a sheet in the garden the night that Jesus was arrested. And when they came to grab Mark, they got a handful of sheet and Mark took off naked. So it's a guy with self-esteem problems. But you know, Mark was connected. Mark had advantages. His cousin was Barnabas, who was Paul's traveling companion on 
at least one of his missionary trips. And, and Mark's mother was one of Jesus' earlier fathers. So, so Mark was kind of in, right? But Mark's problems began when Paul and Barnabas took Mark with him from Jerusalem on his second mission. And in the middle of that mission trip, for some reason, Mark went AWOL. He deserted Barnabas and Paul and ran back to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know why. It could have been just that he wimped out because the conditions on the mission trip were harsh. Or it could be that he got into an argument with Paul. I mean, if you're going to argue with an apostle, that takes a lot of chutzpah. But in any event, Mark was a colossal disappointment. And things got worse for him as he found himself at the center of a heated argument. Acts chapter 15 describes how Barnabas, the kind soul that he was, and Mark's cousin, wanted to, even after Mark had blown it, he said he wanted to take John Mark along with him on their next mission trip. But Paul refused. He wouldn't have anything to do with it because of Mark's desertion. Now, Acts tells us that Paul and Barnabas had uh, an angry argument. I, and, and I think when we think about, uh, you know, apostles and things, we think that they talked with their hands folded and like this. But the, but, the, but the words, the description of this argument is that Paul and Barnabas, these ministry companions, because of what Mark had done, it was kind of one of these things where the veins stand out on your forehead. It was an argument. They threw down. And it was over Mark. And because of that, I think that the, the news of Mark's failure spread pretty much to all the churches all over, all over that area of the world. And the reason we know that is because Paul tells us here, doesn't he? He says, and Mark, about whom you received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. He had to tell them to open up to Mark. Somewhere along the line, Mark had apparently changed his tune and repented of his behavior. And we know this because in his letter to Timothy, Paul says to, to send Mark. Talking about Mark, he says, send Mark because he's useful to me. And a Peter, whom Mark spent a considerable amount of time with, writes about Mark as his son. But this bad reputation because of his past failure, stuck to Mark like glue. And like I said, Paul had to instruct the Colossians to welcome him. This guy had a bad reputation because of something in the past. But because he had somewhere along the line had repented, you know, implicit in Paul's order that you welcome him, bring him in, Colossians, Implicit in his order is that in Christ our past failures are forgiven and forgotten. And Paul didn't even add, okay, yeah, Mark's coming, receive him, but you better watch him close. This guy's a screw-up. He just said simply, welcome him. In Jesus, failures are not forever. I mean, Peter himself denied Jesus at one point. James, the brother of Jesus, refused to believe that he was a Savior. But failures don't mark us in God's book. Faith does. 
There's a, a section in Hebrews chapter 11 that a lot of people call the Hall of Faith. And it speaks of the heroes of the faith. I mean, all the big names are there, right? There's, there's Moses, there's Abraham, there's David. I mean, all the heavy hitters of the faith are there. And it says in verse 2, it says, By faith, these men gained God's approval. By faith. What it doesn't say is that each of these guys had their own disappointing failures. Numerous times. Numerous failures. But they're not mentioned. Noah, he got drunk and he cursed his grandson. Noah had a failure. Abraham, when he went down to Egypt, he endangered his own wife to save his own skin. That's a big failure. Among others. Moses blew it. He got mad at the people that God had put under his care. And this is a big one. My wife and I were reading about this the other day and it just kind of hit us in the face. There's a guy there by the name of Jephthah mentioned mentioned in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith in this marquee section in the in the in, in the awards ceremony if you will of the Bible a guy by the name of Jephthah. If we read about Jephthah, we find out that he was a valiant warrior. And God used him to deliver Israel. But Jephthah made a very foolish vow. He said, Lord, if you give me this victory over here, I love you so much, I'm going to sacrifice the first thing I see after I come home. And many of you know the story that as Jephthah was coming home from that victorious battle, the first thing he saw was his daughter. And he did it. That's a huge failure. Jephthah's in there. Because past failures are not what God marks. God marks faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Samson. He just blew off his parents. He got drunk and married a Philistine. David. King David was an adulterer and a murderer. That's pretty colossal failures. But none of them are listed here. They're listed in the Hall of Faith. Now, it's not that the Bible ignores it or conceals it, because as as those stories are told in the Bible, it's all brought out in living color. But here, in Hebrews 11, it's all about their faith. There's nothing mentioned about that. But only of the triumph of their trust in God is committed. It's like a scoreboard with only one score on it. Home team, this much, no other score listed. You know, I think we tend to think of God sometimes as having a scoreboard where the where the pluses are on one side and, the, and then the, the negatives or the sin or whatever you would call it are on the other side. But God's not like that. God takes all of our failures to the cross and only that which pleases Him remains. It says He's taken our sins as far as the east is from the west. It says that He remembers our sins no more. That's good news. 
for past failures. For past failures. He doesn't have a scoreboard with the pluses and the minuses. He's got a scoreboard, but it's just the pluses. Because all the rest has been taken to the cross for all of those, for any of those, for any of you, any of us that will trust in Jesus Christ. You know, when I had my business in my office, uh, my wife used to come in and complain because I had all of these papers from my kids. I mean, little drawings from the time they were two to what, right? I mean, you know, they were taped all over everything, just hanging on tape, and it just looked horrible. But there were little things, right, that said, Daddy, I love you. Daddy, you're my best friend. All those kinds of things. And I just papered my whole office with them. I didn't put up their failing report cards on the wall. I didn't put up all the things that through the years they had broken. I didn't put those on display. I put the little ribbons, you know, for their t-ball and their soccer and all that kind of stuff because I love them. That's a father's love. And that's our father's love. At a junior high basketball game, in the fourth quarter, the clock was expired and the home team was behind by one point. Time was expired. Little Johnny is at the free throw line shooting two. And the game's on the line. Make two. His team wins, make one, and they tie. Problem is, little Johnny's not a very good basketball player. And the only reason he's in the game is because everybody else fouled out. In the crowd, his parents watch anxiously as the gym falls silent, and all you can hear is the bouncing of the ball as little Johnny prepares to shoot. The first shot glances off to the right. But there's still one more chance to tie. The second shot is short, barely hits the rim. The game's over. The crowd begins to make their way down out from the bleachers, and Johnny hangs his head in disappointment and embarrassment. But Johnny's dad sprints down the bleachers picks up his son in his arms and dances around. Just overjoyed. And Johnny says to him, Daddy, I missed both free throws. I lost the game. And he says, Son, you're the greatest. I'm so proud of you. You hit the rim both times. That's our God. That's our God. By faith in Jesus Christ, our sins and failures are removed from us forever and we become children of a father like that. That's the good news of the gospel. That's satisfaction. Love like that. Satisfaction for the soul. 
And it's the free gift of God to any and to all who will believe. Father, we thank you that though we have such screwed up ideas of what you're like, that your word sets us straight. You're God of love. A God that loves so much, Lord, that you dealt with our sins so they no longer remain. They're no longer on the scoreboard. They're not in your mind. Father, thank you for Jesus who made that possible and made that real. Well, Father, give us faith to trust in all that he is and all his fullness, Lord. And I just pray, Father, if anyone's here that doesn't know you, that doesn't know the love of a father like that, that today, that your Holy Spirit would pierce their soul and help them to see Jesus, help them to desire Jesus in all the fullness that he is. Thank you for coming into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.